Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We will begin with more Houthi attacks against shipping as the war in Gaza passes the 100-day mark and get an analysis of U.S. Middle East policy that goes against the foreign policy establishment, arguing that Israel and Saudi Arabia are liabilities to the United States and our unwavering support for them has emboldened Israel and Saudi Arabia to pursue reckless policies, knowing that the U.S. will come to their aid and not hold them responsible. Joining us is John Hoffman, a policy analyst in defense and foreign policy at the Cato Institute and a professor at George Mason University specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. He was recently awarded the 40 Under 40 Award from the Middle East Policy Council for his work on U.S. foreign policy in the region, and his work has been featured in Middle East Policy, Open Democracy, The Cipher Brief, and Foreign Policy Magazine. We will discuss his article at Foreign Policy, U.S. Middle East Policy Has Failed, The Region Is On Fire, and Washington Is To Blame. Then, with Congressman Comer, who is on a jihad to impeach the president, now backing down, saying his job was, quote, never to impeach Biden, we will speak with Michael Gerhardt, a distinguished professor of jurisprudence at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the scholar-in-residence at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, and the former scholar on impeachment in the United States. He is one of only two legal scholars to testify in three different presidential impeachment hearings and served as a special counsel to the presiding officer in Donald Trump's second impeachment trial. He is the only legal scholar to address the entire House of Representatives on the law of presidential impeachment, and his latest book, Just Out, is The Law of Presidential Impeachment, A Guide for the Engaged Citizen. Then finally, we'll get an update from Iowa on the Republican caucus underway on the coldest caucus day on record and go to Iowa City to speak with Timothy Hagel, a professor of political science at the University of Iowa who teaches judicial politics and behavior, American politics and public administration. He's the author of a number of books, including Riding the Caucus Roller Coaster 2020. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. 
And joining us now is John Hoffman, a policy analyst in defense and foreign policy at the Cato Institute and a professor at George Mason University specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. He was recently awarded the 40 Under 40 Award from the Middle East Policy Council for his work on U.S. foreign policy in the region. And his work has been featured in Middle East Policy, Open Democracy, The Cipher Brief and Foreign Policy Magazine. And he has an article at Foreign Policy, U.S. Middle East Policy Has Failed, The Region Is On Fire, and Washington Is To Blame. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Hoffman. Well, thank you as always for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us in this stark contrast between the U.S. firing missiles at the Houthis and the Houthis in return firing missiles at U.S. destroyer, and they struck a U.S.-owned container ship doing little damage as it happened. But still, if you contrast that with the Middle East on the brink of an all-out war, wars, I guess, plural, over half a million people in London over the weekend demonstrated against Israel's war on Gaza. So do you think that the American public are aware of this disconnect, that here we are, weapons being used in our name in the Middle East once again, at the same time our allies around the world are distancing themselves from our number one client in the, na- in the neighborhood, Israel? Yeah, no, it's it's crazy how quickly things have escalated since just the last time you and I have spoke. Um, but no, I, I, regarding whether the American public has kind of internalized any of this, I, my answer would be is I hope. Uh, you know, there were estimates that about 400,000 people were in Washington, D.C. yesterday um, or the day before, you know, b- protesting against what's going on. And there's bipartisan outrage in Congress right now, you know, pressing against Biden and saying, you know, what what the hell is going on? We are, you know, emphatically backing Israel unconditionally as it you know drags Gaza to the brink of annihilation. And, you know, we are now facing what is what could quite possibly evolve into a multi-front war in the Middle East between Hezbollah and Lebanon, uh, different militias in Iraq and Syria, and then the Houthis in Yemen. So, you know, this is rapidly spiraling out of control. But, you know, Biden and Brett McGurk, they just, you know, they see the fire, but they keep reaching for the same fire hose and it fails every time. So why do you think that's the case? Did Biden make the calculation from day one after the October 7th brutal attack uh, on Israel by Hamas? Did he make, and showing up in Israel, did Biden make the calculus that was more important to defend and maintain the big donors to the Democratic Party in this election year? And, And was he unaware of or not, did he not calculate that young Democrats would be outraged and he's bleeding votes as a result. Yeah, no, and, and he's bleeding votes and uh, approval ratings very fast. And, you know, I think this was, a, a, on one hand, a miscalculation. I think he underestimated, you know, how angry his young voter base would get, how angry Arab and Muslim Americans would get in the United States. And, you know, but he what he did post October 7th. And let's be clear, you know, October 7th, what what Hamas did was awful. But what has been done in turn, you know, the actions taken by Israel are just as awful. And, you know, the United States and Biden in particular, by just emphatically embracing that, you know, has essentially just doubled down on 80 years of failed U.S. Middle East policy. 
and you know barriers to change you know why why did he do this instead of you know do something else it's because what you just mentioned you know access to funding you know very powerful lobbies in dc you know this kind of commanding mindset in dc that you know is almost impossible or incapable of fathoming a, a smaller us presence in the middle east so all of these compounding factors that have been in place for decades these structural kind of constraints and barriers to change you know, they're just all very on display right now. <laughs> sure. Well, you write in your foreign policy article, um, John Hoffman, amid the turmoil in the Middle East, Washington continues to reach for its old playbook, throwing money, weapons, and military assets at the region. The Biden administration remains adamant that pursuing an Israeli-Saudi normalization deal centered on the U.S. security guarantees to both countries is the key to achieving lasting peace and prosperity in the Middle East. And then you go on to say the two crucial U.S. partners in the region, Israel and Saudi Arabia, are liabilities to the United States, not assets. And we should fundamentally reorient our approach to both countries, moving from unconditional support to arm's length relationships. Now, that isn't something you don't really hear too often, if ever at all, from Middle East analysts. <laughs> but elaborate on that, if you will. Because, I mean, I, I share your, well, I don't know whether you feel the same way that I do, but I, I just don't understand why we keep getting whipsawed by this region. Back in 68, an obscure Palestinian, Syrian Zahran, he may, you know, basically brought us uh, Richard Nixon as president, as opposed to Robert Kennedy. Uh, then in 1980, another obscure actor in the Middle East, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, brought us Ronald Reagan uh, and cancelled and denied Jimmy Carter a second term. And in 2004, both Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden ensured George W. Bush got a second term. And now Hamas a really ugly, horrible player in the Middle East is probably going to help bring back Donald Trump to the White House. So who who's in charge here, for God's sake, us or them? Yeah, no, and, and, you know, going back to, you know, talking about kind of the overall thrust of the article. So since the 1940s, really, their U.S. Middle East policy has been guided by what I call two pillars. One is unwavering support for the state of Israel. That one's pretty clear cut. The second one is this myth of authoritarian stability that I've, I've talked a lot about in other pieces. And, you know, it's this idea that these illiberal actors are the best way to secure, quote unquote, stability in the Middle East. But, you know, of course, you know, I argue that is the exact opposite. They they are the source of instability. But there is no state that embodies that more than Saudi Arabia. So you have these two countries, you know, Saudi Arabia was the first Arab state to enter the sphere of U.S. influence after World War II and an American interest in post-war oil. So you have these two countries, Saudi Arabia and Israel, who have kind of been the foundational partners of U.S. Middle East policy. But when, you know, when you actually critically examine what these relationships have gotten us, particularly today, you see that these two actors are moral and strategic liabilities. They are not assets. They, on the one hand, on the moral hand, you know, both the pursue policies that are constantly at odds with the values that the United States claims to stand for. 
And then from a strategic perspective, they repeatedly undermine U.S. strategic interests by destabilizing the region, by trying to drag the United States into their uh, costly wars and, and, and as the supporter of their policies. And of course, you know, at a broader level, trying to get the American taxpayer to pay for all of this. So that's kind of where I was trying to situate this article is saying, you know, the everybody is talking about, you know, these kind of second order effects like, oh, deterrence has broken down in the Middle East or, you know, how are we going to combat, you know, Iranian proxies in the region and stuff like that. But so what I wanted to do with this article was bring it back to first order assumptions and say, hey, our very conceptualization of what U.S. Middle East policy in the region should be is flawed. Our understandings of what constitutes stability and U.S. interest in the region is flawed. And the actors that we think get us towards those U.S. objectives are actually not partners or are, are not you know beneficial partners or they're liabilities. They're not assets. So, you know, that's ultimately what I wanted to take a stab at with this piece. Well, in terms of Yemen, which is the latest hotspot and which could get out of control as the U.S. strikes the Houthis and the Houthis fire at commercial ships, which they've been doing for some time now. But the history there is that back in 2015, the then Saudi defense minister, Mohammed bin Salman, started this war, you know, completely arrogant, entitled as he is, having murdered a journalist for the Washington Post and essentially gotten away with it thanks to Jared Kushner and Donald Trump. So, you know, he starts this military campaign in Yemen that's cost 377,000 lives, according to UN estimates. And that's the background. And then, of course, the background to what's happening now in Gaza is 75 years of essentially an apartheid policy towards the Palestinians, largely led by Netanyahu, who single-handedly boasts that he killed the Oslo Accords and recently told his Likud faction that there's no way in the world, as long as he's in power, there'll never be a two-state solution, in spite of what Biden and Blinken are saying nowadays. But the point you make here, I'll just quote from your article, ultimately, unwavering U.S. support has emboldened Israel and Saudi Arabia to pursue reckless policies, knowing that the United States will come to their aid, their aid and will not hold them responsible. So that's our, our Middle East legacy, right? Uh, I mean, it, it, quite literally, <laughs> yes. And, you know, uh, what you were just talking about, thank you for giving uh, some uh, background on, on what's going on in Yemen, because I think it's important to note first on the Yemen issue is, you know, after the United States made these strikes, you actually saw Saudi Arabia put out a statement calling for de-escalation, calling for everybody to pump the brakes. So if you have this, you know, if you have Saudi Arabia saying, whoa, hold on here, guys, and they've been the ones who started this war and, and you know, invaded in 2015, then something is seriously wrong. Because if the Saudi, if, if the Saudi government's, you know, raising red flags, then that should be a flag for everybody. But no, you're exactly right. It, it, our unwavering support for actors in the region, and it's not just Saudi, it's not just Israel, it's the UAE, it's Egypt, it's Bahrain, it's all these different states, because they pursue these policies at home and abroad to advance their own interests while leveraging the relationship with the United States, and they know that Washington will never hold them accountable. But like we just mentioned earlier, 
what will be fascinating to see this year, 2024, is whether or not the United States holds these countries accountable is irrelevant. But I'm curious to see whether the American people hold Biden accountable for what he is doing. And it seems like, according to a lot of the polling numbers, a lot of you know anger expressed in the United States, it seems like, like you just said, most likely Donald Trump will return, unfortunately. Well, surely Biden knows. I mean, he got out of Afghanistan, albeit rather clumsily. Um, yes. But he, at least he got out, and he he was always against uh, the buildup. He argued against uh, then President Obama's buildup that you know we should have done Afghanistan, not Iraq. That somehow we got distracted with the wrong war. The truth of the matter is that both wars, you, know, you might as well have dug a big hole in the sand and dumped about eight or ten trillion dollars. So Biden must know that these misadventures have been a catastrophic mistake for the United States. So, and as we speak, uh, John, there are more than 57,000 U.S. military personnel and contractors in the Middle East. There's 12,500 in the Eastern Mediterranean, 3,500 in Jordan, 900 in Syria. In Iraq, there are 2,000. In Kuwait, there are 10,000. In Bahrain, there are 4,500. In Qatar, there are 10,000. In UAE, there are 5,000. Saudi Arabia, there's 2,500. In the Red Sea, there's 4,500. And in the Arabian Sea and the Gulf, there are 1,200. So we're in there deep, and the presence of this superpower doesn't seem yeah. to bring about any resolution. It's just the same old, no, same old. Absolutely. And I think it's critical to mention, because you just listed all of those numbers, given all of that, all of that presence in the Middle East, all of, of the military assets, all of the lives, all of the 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 money that has been devoted towards, you know, in active and assertive U.S. presence in the Middle East, what has that actually accomplished? And when you look at it, it's accomplished nothing. Our presence does not deter. Our presence does not stabilize. Our presence incites and it destabilizes. So, you know, I think there needs to be a real reckoning with the very, you know, fundamental assumptions of U.S. foreign policy that, oh, my gosh, we are the indispensable nation, as as Biden refers to us. You know, we can't leave the Middle East or you know, things like that. But look at what our policies, our presence and our partners have done in this region. And it's, you know, from a moral and strategic perspective, un objectionable on every account. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, I mean, given that these governments that we support in that region are just disgusting, horrible governments, they're either medieval monarchies, military thugs, mafia families, or religious nuts. And arguably Israel is a, is a democracy, except not for the Palestinians. And I understand that support for democracy vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the Arab world, but is it ever going to change? I mean, remember during the Arab Spring, everybody thought there was a massive change underway? Well, <laughs> believe it or not, it was the Saudi Arabians who undermined and scuttled democracy in, in Egypt. So, and again, we ended up with a military thug supported by a medieval monarch. Yeah, you know, in terms of whether things will actually change and how they're going to change, you know, my, my first assumption would be, you know, right now, I, I highly 
doubt Biden, McGurk, Blinken, and Sullivan are going to adjust course. Uh, you know, I have a couple family members who worked for the federal government for a long time, and they always joke around and they say, if you're expecting them to do the the right thing or adjust course after doing the wrong thing, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't see Biden adjusting course. You know, a, a, in order to achieve fundamental change, I think there's going to have to be a generational change of those who are actually directing U.S. foreign policy, U.S. Middle East policy, and the so on. Because you see, you know, my generation and the generation below me, you know, that are incredibly frustrated with America's adventurism abroad. And whether or not the United States maintains the ability to project force in the Middle East as it is currently is also a critical, you know, thing to consider. You know, we're we're continuing to get involved in Ukraine. You know, we're still supporting the Ukrainians. You know, tensions between China and Taiwan are escalating by the day. You know, now you have Republicans in Congress who are calling for an authorization for the use of military force for Mexico to combat drug cartels. So the United States if we continue down this direction, is going to find itself overextended pretty rapidly in certain areas, certain global theaters are going to have to be prioritized over others. And when you look at that list, the Middle East is pretty far down on there. So just in closing, then, what do you recommend? Well, so my recommendation is a complete absolute overhaul of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. That will never happen under Joe Biden. Um, that will probably never happen in the next couple of years. But I C think certainly won't happen under under Trump. Oh, his foreign policy will be run by Netanyahu th through his stenographer, Jared Kushner, who Trump plans to name as secretary of state. Oh, yes. Yeah. I saw the Axios article that lists the prospective Trump cabinet, and it's absolutely terrifying. Um, but but no, it, it's true. It, it, you know, Trump is going to be, you know, just as bad, if not worse, you know, most likely worse. And I had a colleague phrase it to me the other day that I, I thought, you know, rang pretty true. The only thing that's going to make the United States change course, either here at home or abroad, is some sort of critical juncture, some sort of combination of domestic and international crises that drag the United States forcibly towards change. And that's, you know, incredibly sad to think of. And that's incredibly sad to even contemplate that that's the only way we can achieve change. But it seems like by the day, by the week, this is the direction that we're heading because people in Washington are so disconnected. Well, John Hoppin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Of course, Ian. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with John Hoffman, who's a policy analyst in defense and foreign policy at the Cato Institute and a professor at George Mason University specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. He was recently awarded the 40 Under 40 Award from the Middle East Policy Council for his work on U.S. foreign policy in the region. And his work has been featured in Middle East Policy, Open Democracy, The Cipher Brief, and Foreign Policy Magazine. And he has an article at Foreign Policy, U.S. Middle East Policy Has Failed, the region is on fire and Washington is to blame. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking to the former scholar on impeachment in the United States about how Congressman Comer, who was on a jihad to impeach the president, is now backing down, saying his job was, quote, never to impeach Biden. Public opinion may not be on your side. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Gerhardt, who's a distinguished professor of jurisprudence and at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the scholar-in-residence at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, and the foremost scholar on impeachment in the United States. He's one of the only two legal scholars to testify in three different presidential impeachment hearings and served as a special counsel to the presiding officer in Donald Trump's second impeachment trial. He is the only legal scholar to address the entire House of Representatives on the law of presidential impeachment, and his latest book just out is The Law of Presidential Impeachment, A Guide for the Engaged Citizen. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Gerhardt. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining us. And how much do you think citizens are engaged in this latest impeachment effort underway? I guess this is the fourth time, but the impeachment train has left the station, but it uh, already uh, looks like it's running out of steam, or it might, in fact, stall. I I, I think it's hard to know how uh, much uh, the citizens are engaged on this, um, because it's been, uh, as you just pointed out, sort of uh, it's been erratic. It's it's um, um, there's been a lot of high flown and heated rhetoric, but no proof insofar as President Biden's misconduct is concerned. And so, with the different messages we're getting out of Congress, uh, as well as the absence of any sort of uh, concrete evidence of any wrongdoing, I think it ends up being mostly below radar at this point. Well. The House Speaker, Mike Johnson, has said that evidence of Joe Biden's corruption is, quote, the worst in the history of the country. So that kind of hyperbole obviously gets headlines and attention, but there's no backup. Uh, is this really a case of what happened back uh, with Hillary Clinton, with the Benghazi hearing, where she testified for hours on end and there was no there there? But I think it was Kevin McCarthy who said the quiet part out loud, saying, well, we weren't really expecting to succeed in the hearings, but we wanted to dirty her up because she's going to be running for president. So do you think this is what's happening? That It's a political game of dirtying up Biden, even if there's no there there? I think that's exactly what it is. I, I think the House leadership, particularly Speaker Johnson, want to... Um, keep this so-called impeachment proceeding going or the impeachment hearings going. So it gives Johnson and other House members um, the opportunity to bash Joe Biden. And while uh, Speaker Johnson uses hyperbolic rhetoric in suggesting that Biden is the most corrupt official in American history, um, but, uh, Johnson's colleagues in, in the Republican caucus don't agree. Many of them think there's no evidence at all um, of wrongdoing. And several Republican senators have said as much as well. And that's the kind of problem I think Republicans have been running into, which is some of them are willing to call it as they see it, which is there's no, there's no there there. Well, this is uh, apparently even even got to Representative Comer. He's now sort of, he's not backing down, but he's more or less saying, well, you know, we're not really out to impeach him. I mean, what, <laughs> what else is going on? Well, so, that's that seems to me to be an admission <laughs> uh, right. that this isn't really about impeachment, which ought to be rarely used to address serious misconduct in office. Instead, as Comer suggests, 
well, we're, you know, we're just doing this to hurt Biden and that's an abuse of power. But I think it's happening in a way that uh, might please the base, Trump's base. But otherwise, I think it's um, not moving any other needle. So the recent revelations by the the Democratic members of the House Oversight Committee uh, who released a report on two years of Trump's four years in office, the extent to which he made close to $8 million in, from foreign governments, uh, $5.5 million from the Chinese who are considered an adversary. So you have to assume that you could even double that, say $15 million over four years. That is real money as opposed to floating all kinds of charges without backing them up. Did that have any impact, do you think, that recent release from the Democrats in the, on the House? I, think, Committee? We, I think we get that uh, rhetoric from Speaker Johnson, uh, that hyper, her, hyperbole about Joe Biden's misconduct as a way to, to distract from Trump's misconduct. So we have concrete evidence that Trump um, did a lot of self-dealing as president. So in order to take attention away from that, uh, Johnson and somehow Republicans have got to pound the table and heighten their rhetoric. But none of that is evidence of wrongdoing. And I think um, any dispassionate, neutral individual sees um, what this gambit uh, is really for in the House, and that is transparently partisan and transparently designed to hurt Biden, but not really define any kind of misconduct because there isn't any serious misconduct defined. Michael Gerhardt, you had a, an article at CNN. It's been 50 years since Nixon resigned. Impeachment hasn't held up well. The big difference back then, of course, Nixon wasn't impeached, but the threat of impeachment was sufficient to have him uh, removed. And as it happens, a, a good friend of mine, Alex Butterfield, revealed the existence of the tapes. And prior to that, it was Nixon's word against John Dean, essentially. And suddenly there was evidence but the point that you make is that that was a bipartisan joint committee investigating Nixon. And if you look, think back to Howard Baker and Sam Irvin and those people that were prominent on that committee, that's a different breed of congressperson uh, from today. I mean, I think ever since Sarah Palin, there have been people coming into the House and Trump's brought them into both the House and Senate, like Tuberville and and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Coma. Let's be frank, they're not particularly bright, are they? I mean, isn't this, is this a problem with the quality of the people in the Congress that they would stoop so low? I think it's a problem of um, hyper-partisanship. Um, sometimes we, we call it tribalism. Um, and so Americans are divided into, kind of, into separate camps, so to speak. Um, uh, largely because sort of of hatred for each other. Um, and I think that's what we hear from Green and that's what we hear from Comer, just a lot of hostility. Um, and that I think is different, of course, than what we experienced many, many years ago with Nixon back in 1974. With Nixon, I think, as you just pointed out, we, we had members of both parties devoted to the Constitution and willing to undertake a serious investigation. Fast forward to today, the only investigations... House Republicans want to do are those that help themselves politically and transparently. Um, and that doesn't do a lot of, uh, for their credibility. So what happened over the weekend then with 
Hunter Biden's lawyer, Abby Lowell, saying that there was an exchange of letters with House Oversight Committee Chair James Comer and also House Judiciary Committee Chair Jim Jordan, where Lowell has sort of said that his client, Hunter Biden, who showed up at the impeachment hearing the other day and embarrassed the Republicans, and he's basically saying, I'll testify in public because if I testify in private, you're going to alter the transcript and cherry-pick, which has certainly been the the MO so far. So now Lowell is saying that he will, Hunter Biden, will testify to avoid criminal contempt if he gets a proper subpoena. What, what does he mean by that, a proper subpoena? It probably means that it, uh, there should be a subpoena issued that is requesting specific information, uh, as opposed to a subpoena issued that is part of a fishing expedition. Um, The Supreme Court in a case called Trump versus Mazur decided in 2020, looked at a House subpoena um, uh, directed at third parties that had information about Donald Trump. Supreme Court said in that case, a fishing expedition is not a legitimate objective, but what the House has to do, and it has to do this in a subpoena, is really specify the need for certain documents or certain things in the possession of the witness um, instead of, gee, uh, we just want to look at your bank records to see if we can discover anything. Um, So what Abby Lowell's suggesting is that he doesn't think the House can produce such a subpoena because they don't know what they're looking for uh, and they don't know what charges they would bring against either Hunter Biden uh, or the president. So your new book, Michael Gerhardt, um, The Law of Presidential Impeachment, A Guide for the Engaged Citizen, deals with the history of impeachment, and it's, it's very much front and center in the intentions of the founding fathers, is it not? Yes. Madison and, and Mason, Madison and Mason in particular. And this was largely to do with the fact that they were up against a absentee landlord, the the British king. And in many ways, can you make an an analogy with Donald Trump as a kind of king-like figure to the Republicans? I mean, the the fact that what they're doing is essentially either Trump's giving Mike Johnson orders and Comer orders, which is bad enough if that's the case, but it's also equally likely that they're just doing it to please the monarch. I think that's right. Um, I think that it, you're right on both counts. I think Trump wants it and they're doing this to please Trump. Um, but as you also point out, and I think this is a very important uh, point, that uh, impeachment was uh, a critical, um, the framers believed that impeachment was a critical safeguard of democracy. When they broke free from England, they issued a declaration of, of independence. We all know that. But if one reads the Declaration of Independence, you'll discover it was 27 articles of impeachment against the king. And the framers did that purposely because the king was the only person in all of England not subject to impeachment or to the rule of law. And the framers made clear, therefore, that they were um, going to leave a country which had a tyrant like that who was unaccountable in law or anywhere else and instead put together a constitution in which the principle no one above the law is central. Well, of course, ironically, that's the very language now that Steve Scalise is using 
against Hunter Biden, saying <laughs> that he doesn't get to play by different rules. He's not above the law. So what do you do about that? I mean, are we literally in a factory zone here that these members of Congress are, are not exactly up on their history? Well, I, I, I do think a problem is sometimes for these members of the House, they're, they live in a fact-free and law-free zone. Um, uh, Donald Trump defied a number of congressional subpoenas. I didn't hear Scalise say anything about that being a problem. A number of other officials in the Trump administration defied congressional subpoenas. I heard nothing from anybody in the administration uh, at that time. And now we fast forward to the president when suddenly Scalise and others care about, oh, somebody's defying a congressional subpoena. The law applies to everybody the same. Trump should have complied with the subpoena. And I would argue Hunter Biden should comply with the subpoena. That's what attachment to the rule of law means. Well, of course, the House Judiciary Committee chair, Jim Jordan, also defied a subpoena rather flagrantly, did he not? Yes. And um, and so what we're what we're, we can gather from statements from Jordan, Scalise and others is they will look for wrongdoing uh, or sometimes even make up wrongdoing on, on the part of others. Um, but they will not hold themselves to the same standard. Um, so it's not a principle they're following. That's just partisanship. So are we then con to conclude, Michael Gerhardt, that, that partisanship rules in this situation? That Can we sort of dismiss this as, as tawdry theater, even though a lot of the base lap it up? And that's why they're largely doing it. But at the end of the day, can you take some solace from the, the fact that it looks as if the vote in the House, given what they only have a two-seat margin or something very narrow, is pretty shaky. What's your take on whether or not they could actually get an impeachment vote through the House? Well, I gather from recent reports that they don't have the votes yet to impeach um, Joe Biden, and they may not get those votes. Um, Comer's public comments suggest that even kind of suggests that he's happy to be done with this relatively soon, which is not the kind of bellicose rhetoric he was using at the beginning, declaring that they were going to um, find all this uh, criminal wrongdoing on the part of Joe Biden and impeach him. No, I think what we're seeing is that um, we can believe our eyes that this appears to be a partisan witch hunt, which has um, been uh, how Trump described his own impeachment, but in the, but Trump often projects onto others what he would like to do himself. So this is, in fact, a partisan witch hunt um, against Joe Biden. Um, and so far, it's come up with nothing. Well, we are entering an era, are we not, or an era of lawlessness, vindictiveness. The thing that I find extraordinary is that here we are with so much of the press today focused on the Iowa caucuses and the weather, etc. And you have this kind of presidential horse race, electoral horse race underway, with all this attention on the mechanics of American democracy, at the same time that American democracy itself is under threat. So I find that really an extraordinary disconnect. I think that's a great point. Um, I, I think what we're also witnessing is that Republicans play only to their base, but their base does not consist of a majority of Americans. So that's a problem. If they govern 
with respect to only what benefits them, their base, um, they won't have a majority to impeach Biden, but they'll also not have a majority to get anything else done. Well, Michael Gerhardt, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Gerhardt, who's a distinguished professor of jurisprudence at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the scholar in residence at the National Constitutional Center in Philadelphia, and the foremost scholar on impeachment in the United States. He's one of only two legal scholars to testify in three different presidential impeachment hearings and served as a special counsel to the presiding officer in Donald Trump's second impeachment trial. And he's the only legal scholar to address the entire House of Representatives on the law of presidential impeachment. And his latest book just out is The Law of Presidential Impeachment, A Guide for the Engaged Citizen. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an update from Iowa on the Republican caucus underway on the coldest caucus day on record. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Iowa City is Timothy Hagel, a professor of political science at the University of Iowa, who teaches judicial politics and behavior, American politics, and public administration. And his latest book is Riding the Caucus Roller Coaster 2020. Welcome to Background Briefing, Timothy Hagel. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And apart from Free, being freezing cold uh, where you are, Timothy, you will be venturing out later, right? The caucuses begin at 8 p.m. Eastern, that's right? Correct. And what's the sense there in the state of Iowa in terms of turnout? Because a lot of the candidates, and including Donald Trump, who's way ahead, are concerned about a low turnout because a lot of the voters are elderly folks. That's certainly true. Uh, Iowa is kind of known as having a state with voters that are a little bit older. And of course, older folks, particularly the very elderly, are concerned about going out at night in wintertime anyway. And we're supposed to have temperatures as low as minus 10 or below that with a very dangerous wind chill as much as minus 40 in some places. We'll have to see how bad it actually is. And it's probably not going to be that bad all across the state, maybe just some particular areas. And so right now we're sort of maybe hoping for around 150,000 in terms of the turnout. That would be a reasonably good night, lower than the high of about 187,000 that we had in 2016. But uh, st certainly good for this, uh, given the weather and so forth. But if the turnout is much below that 150 level, then we're going to be concerned that it may be affecting the, not just the turnout, of course, but might be affecting the the patterns for some of the, the candidates. So maybe some candidates would be affected more than others. On the other hand, we know, for example, that Trump's supporters are very enthusiastic for him. Uh, DeSantis has had a very good ground game, so may not be affected. Maybe Haley's supporters might be a little more effective because their enthusiasm for her was a little soft. But on the other hand, at this point, we just have to wait and see. But this is a Republican-only primary, right? The Democrats are not participating. 
that, well, they wouldn't have much going on anyway, because with an incumbent of their party in the White House, uh, there wouldn't be much activity. But no, the Democrats have decided, based on the decision by the DNC, Democratic National Committee, that uh, I was not among the early states. And so the Iowa Democrats decided to abandon the traditional caucus process and they're having a mail-in ballot. And Democrats can request that ballot now. Uh, they'll actually be uh, sent out uh, a little bit later this month or next month. And then the uh, results will be announced on Super Tuesday. So at that point, it won't matter much. Again, really doesn't matter that much anyway, since at least right now, President Biden doesn't have any serious challenger. So is there any possibility of a surprise, given how far ahead Trump is in the polls? Some people have suggested that there may be a bit of a surprise in as much as a lot of people, when they talk to journalists or pollsters, say that they're going to vote for Donald Trump because they don't want to you know, have their friends get angry at them if they say otherwise. In other words, there's an intimidation factor that you don't want to say publicly that you're against Trump. Is there anything to that, do you think? Well, I suppose it's always true that to some extent people may not always be completely honest when they're talking on the phone to an unknown pollster. Uh, it's hard to say how much of an effect that actually has. Hopefully the pollsters try to do a good enough job of screening folks out if they think that they're maybe being deceptive or something of that nature. But even if they can't screen those folks out, uh, we'll just wait and see. Um, uh, whether there are surprises, there are always surprises of one sort or another. We also often see movement in the very last few days, right up until caucus night. And I know some people that don't actually make their decision until they get in that caucus room, whereas others have made their decision long ago. So there's a great variability there. Um, I, I, given that the nature of Trump's lead and how long it's been so so large, uh, all during this process, it seems like it's going to be very unlikely that DeSantis, the bigger question is probably going to be how close can they get to him. Uh, the DeSantis are fairly confident the strength of their ground, that their folks are turn out. Uh, at least folks came on strong and they're working hard to try to make sure that people come out in the cold as well. So the weather may have a bit of a factor here in terms of whether one or the other can get close to Trump. But it, I think it would be pretty unlikely at this point for them to actually breach that gap and actually finish ahead of Trump in the caucuses. Well, Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa has endorsed uh, Ron DeSantis and he's apparently going down in the polls compared to Nikki Haley is coming up and surpassing him in second place to Trump. So what does that say about the governor's clout? Well, I'm not sure it says a whole lot because I'm not sure that the effect that her endorsement had is going to show up in the polls necessarily. Now, it did when Governor Sununu endorsed Nikki Haley her pulse shot up, but other things were going on at the same time. It didn't necessarily happen here in Iowa, but my feeling was that it was more a matter of Governor Reynolds helping DeSantis in other ways, in terms of, of uh, organizational support, names of people he could contact, and so forth. And that may have an effect later on, which is to say specifically tonight. We'll see that in terms of the ground game. I'd also say that DeSantis, of course, has faced something on the order of a $30 million headwind of negative advertising here. So you could probably argue, and maybe the DeSantis campaign would argue this, that Reynolds' endorsement kept him from sinking even lower than perhaps he did. I'd also say in terms of the polls that even though the Iowa poll, the one by the Des Moines Register, NBC News, and Mediacom, 
is the one that's considered the gold standard for falling for the Caucasus. I'm still skeptical of it. I'm not sure that Haley, in fact, jumped that much ahead of uh, DeSantis. And of course, it's still pretty close to the margin of error at 3.7%. At least it actually it is close to the that uh, or within that margin of error, given that it's plus or minus for each of the candidates. So I'm waiting to see what the results are tonight. I still think that DeSantis is probably going to be ahead of, of Haley. The weather, though, like I say, may be a factor as, as well. So um, at this point, with a couple hours to go, we might as well say, let's wait for the results on that one. But who spent all that money against DeSantis? Was that Trump or Haley or both? Primarily, it was Trump, because Trump's been hammering DeSantis since very early on when DeSantis was seen as his main competition. And then once it became clear that it was a great interest who finished second, then you started to see Haley uh, and some of her supporters, AFP Action in particular, Americans for Prosperity Action, that were spending a lot of negative ad- money on negative advertising for DeSantis as well. And that's the Coke network, is it not? Correct. So is this working, though? I mean, you you must be watching TV ads around the clock in Iowa. I mean, they're all I mean, first of all, it's not just Trump in this race still, you, or at least on the ballot. You've got Haley and DeSantis. You've got Ramaswamy still on the ballot, as is Asa Hutchinson and Chris Christie. Well, Chris Christie dropped out. Um, as far as the ballot is concerned, that some of that, uh, the forms and things were drawn up early, so they've got some other people that are still listed there. Uh, but basically, it's a, let's see, Trump, DeSantis, Haley, Ramaswamy. You mentioned Ace Hutchinson, but it, you know he's polling around 1%, so pretty much a non-factor. There's another person named Ryan Binkley who's technically still in the race as well. But of course, if a voter wanted to put in the name of somebody like Tim Scott or even Mike Pence or something like that, they can do that, that they could basically have an, an other beyond the folks that are listed in essential forms. And I'd also say, too, that at least as far as the actual ballot that the voters use, for the most part, it's just a blank slip of paper, so they can write in whatever name they want. But what about the the blanket advertising? Is it working? I mean, first of all, I'm assuming that there's so so much airtime is taken up nowadays with ads. You wonder whether they just sort of blanket each other out at some point. There's an exhaustion factor. You're probably right about that uh, in the sense that you see so many of these and they're often every commercial break. If you're watching a TV show or a football game or something like that, it's like one right after the other. It's probably of interest to the extent that somebody comes up with a new point or a new angle or when there's a new ad. But obviously, if you're seeing the same ad over and over, it may not have the same effect. Plus, we're getting, you know, Republican voters in the state are getting several mailers every day, practically, uh, in terms of from this campaign or that campaign or that pack or another pack, whatever it happens to be. And voters will look at that stuff. But of course, in Iowa, we also have the opportunity usually to go see the candidates. And it's usually better if you can see them in person, see how they respond to questions, whether they're taking the hard questions, if they give good answers to them. Uh, what their body language is, that they seem confident, knowledgeable as somebody who can project that uh, sort of leadership qualities that we're looking for. And you really can't get that necessarily in a TV ad. So the ads, TV ads and the mailers are probably better for the folks that aren't able to uh, get to an actual campaign event uh, somewhere around the state. So it's obviously Martin Luther King Day today, which is a 
a federal holiday. So I imagine to some extent that helps turn out. But a lot of commentators have been pointing out that this is on Martin Luther King Day in a, and in a very white state. So is there any case that could be made that this is somewhat disrespectful? Well, I'm sure some people are probably going to make that case, but I don't think it's a particularly valid one. It just happens that this is it's on the same day as a holiday, uh, certainly in terms of any celebrations that were occurring. And in fact, unfortunately, some of the celebrations that were occurring had to be postponed because of the weather. So there's that aspect to it, too. And as far as Iowa being, a, you know, to a white state, well, that's something Democrats have complained about in terms of why they didn't want Iowa to go first. But that always seems to me to be disrespectful to not only the people of various minority groups in the state, but the people that are the whites. They don't want to somehow uh, celebrate Martin Luther King. That seems disrespectful to them as well. Uh, in terms of the candidates, and again, they're they're doing this on a holiday, it would be nice, and I don't know for sure if the candidates have done this, but it would be nice if they would acknowledge Martin Luther King in any speeches and so forth that they're giving, but giving. But you can also understand that the, the big prize tonight is what's going on with the caucuses, and to some extent that may sort of supersede or, or if not uh, compete with the uh, any celebrations or anything going on with the holiday. So how uh, conservative is the state? I mean, the governor, again, she's pretty conservative, is she not? She Didn't she turn down federal money for poor citizens in Iowa, which wouldn't have cost her anything, but she turned it down on ideological grounds? I'm not sure about that particular policy decision, but certainly Governor Reynolds is fairly conservative. As far as Iowa as a whole, I know a lot of people want to say that Iowa is now a red state, but I like to remind people that Iowa went for Obama in his two elections in 08 and 12, and then, of course, went for Trump in 16 and 20. And certainly right now, with a Republican governor, Republican control, control of both houses of our state legislature, all four of our congressional districts and both senators, certainly were on the red side of purple. But I think we're still a swing state ultimately because of our voter registration is nearly a third, a third, a third between Republicans, Democrats, and what we call no party voters here in Iowa, which are the independents. And as far as any statewide elections or things of that nature, the independents are still the ones that decide. So they're the ones that help to put Reynolds in the office, Republicans in our state legislature and so forth. And right now, it just seems that Republicans' messaging and the, their stance on the issues resonate more with those independent voters than what Democrats do. But at some point, that's undoubt, undoubtedly likely to swing back. So just in closing, the Republican Senator Joni Ernst, a, a veteran, she seems to be breaking with Trump, at least on one issue, and that is the issue of how Trump is turning the insurrectionists from January the 6th into sort of martyrs and heroes, and she's dead against that. And is that resonating at all? I mean, obviously Trump's ahead and he's very popular, but very few Republican senators and Congress people really criticize Trump at all. They're afraid of him. So what do you make of her stance, on, at least on not wanting to regard the January 6th insurrectionists as heroes and martyrs? Well, uh, Senator Ernst is certainly a tough lady, and you don't have to uh, have to anticipate that anybody who's a member of Congress or a public official has to agree with Trump on every issue. 
I think it was Ronald Reagan back in the day, and I'm, I'm probably going to mess, mess up the quote, but I think he said that, you know, if somebody agrees with you 80% of the time, that's not necessarily your enemy. So you, even if you disagree on a couple of issues, even important issues, you still have to understand if it's somebody that's still in your party and you would generally support that person in other areas. As far as the, the J6s are sometimes called defendants, there's certainly going to be a variation there. Some of the people did engage in more physical and violent behavior, and others were charged with things like trespass or parading. And all they did was walk through the Capitol, may not have even understood what they were doing or if what they were doing was wrong. And I think that that's what concerns a lot of people. Now, when you talk about specifically Trump, of course, if he's looking at all of them as martyrs and, and heroes, well, that may be a stretch, but you know, sometimes Trump is overly effusive in his language, and it may be that that's where uh, Senator Ernst is seeing a distinction. Well, Timothy Hagel, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're very welcome. And again, I'll be speaking with Timothy Hagel, who is in Iowa City, where he's a professor of political science at the University of Iowa, and he teaches judicial politics and behavior, American politics, and public administration. And his latest book is Riding the Caucus Roller Coaster 2020. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.